0: Good morning. It's a pleasure to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, we've been praying for you, for this church plant, for some time now, and uh, but up till this point we haven't had the chance to come down and worship with you. So it really is a pleasure to be here. Uh, Jay indicated that you are doing a whirlwind tour of the Gospel of Mark, uh, that you hope to get through it in about three months. Um, He also said that he's encouraging you to read through the gospel at least once a week. Is that right? How are you guys doing with... Oh, we won't raise hands. Uh, Hopefully you're doing well with that. This is a great practice, by the way. Um, Christians today too often uh, get the Bible in bite-sized pieces. Um, And what happens when we do this is that we lose a sense of the big picture, uh, we miss the forest for the trees, as it, as it were. We, we get so caught up on the individual trees that we lose a sense of the larger contour of the forest. Um, we need to get these stories. We need to get them into our bones. And in the words of our gospel reading for this morning, um, the word needs to take deep root in the soil of our hearts. And reading through large passages of scripture is a great way for that to happen. Today is the second Sunday after Epiphany, and in this darkest and coldest time of the year, we celebrate the manifestation of Jesus Christ. Um, It's been about four weeks since the first day of winter, and I don't know if you've noticed, but the days are slowly getting longer. In fact, we've gained about 25 minutes since the first day of winter, and by the end of this month, will have gained another 25 minutes. The, the light is coming. And like the coming of spring, the revelation of Jesus in the Gospels is gradual. Jesus doesn't ride into Jerusalem on a white charger, declaring himself to be the long-awaited Messiah, does he? No, he, instead he reveals himself slowly and strategically. This makes me think of Emily Dickinson's famous poem, Tell the truth, tell all the truth, but tell it slant, success in circus circuit lies too bright for our infirm delight the truth's superb surprise, as lightning to the children ease with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or everyone be blind. We see this kind of light imagery Uh, in epiphany as well. And this is evident in Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus' early ministry in Galilee. This is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Epiphany is about God's revelation then, about his light coming into dark places. But darkness is not dispelled without a struggle, is it? And as we see in the early chapters of Mark, the first advent of Christ is met with considerable opposition. With the coming of light, there is an inevitable uh, clash with darkness. And Mark is especially concerned to highlight the conflict between light and darkness. Immediately after Jesus calls his first disciples in Mark 1, what happens? He goes into the synagogue and has a confrontation with a man who has an unclean spirit. And there are many such confrontations, especially in the early chapters of Mark. In Mark 1.39, Mark sums up Jesus's early ministry with the following words, and he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. In Mark, then, we see Jesus manifested as the exorcist, the son of God who has power over demons. We also see Jesus revealed as the great physician. He can cure all ills, all human ailments. He heals the sick. He heals lepers, the paralytic, and even people with deformities, the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. We also see Jesus as the authoritative teacher of Israel. Um, When he goes into Capernaum in chapter 1, he teaches. And it says in verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who has authority, not as their scribes. So that brings us to our gospel passage for this morning, Mark chapter 4. And here, among other things, we see Jesus Christ revealed as prophet, as prophet in the tradition of Isaiah, who is often referred to as the prince of the Old Testament uh, prophets. As the light of the world, then Jesus penetrates all darkness. This includes human suffering, sickness, disease, demonic depression, uh, oppression. But he also penetrates the darkness of the human condition, the heart. Remember what Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, the Son of God can, and he does. So as prophet, we see here in Mark 4 that Jesus calls the people to hear and to heed the word of God as divine seer. He calls the people to see and perceive with the eyes of their hearts." He has penetrating insight into the human condition, and he expresses this insight with parables. Parables. I think we're all familiar with parables. The English word parable comes directly from the Greek term parabole, which means to place beside or to compare, to make a comparison or an illustration. We think of the parable of the mustard seed uh, in this reading, Mark four thirty, with what shall we compare the kingdom of God, or what parables shall we use? So parables compare things, and in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, parables are the primary tool that Jesus uses to explain the kingdom of God. Um, they make up about parables make up about thirty five percent of Jesus's teaching in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and of course. In Luke, that's a bit less because Luke has less of Jesus' teaching. Why does Jesus use parables? I think we all recognize the power of stories, right? Uh, We all pay attention to stories. They're not just for little children. Uh, The vitality of streaming services like Disney Plus and Netflix demonstrate this, that we love stories. Stories entertain. They inform They awaken, they motivate, they authenticate, and they mirror our existence. And Jesus' parables are memorable too, aren't they? Uh, Many today are not familiar with Jesus at all, but they are familiar with the Good Samaritan. They are familiar with the Prodigal Son. So, in Mark 4, after Jesus tells the parable of the sower the first time, the Twelve ask him about parables, and notice his reply in chapter 4 verses 11 through 12. If you have a Bible, turn there to Mark 4 verses 11 through 12. Notice Jesus' reply about why he uses parables. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." This is a strange answer. This is a difficult answer. In fact, this response has confused many because it seems to directly contradict the whole point of Jesus' coming into the world, doesn't it? Didn't Jesus come to bring light? Didn't he come to bring the truth to people? But here it seems like Jesus is keeping secrets, that he's hiding the truth. Part of the problem, I think, is that we have a misperception about parables. We think that parables are primarily intended to make Jesus' teaching more accessible, easier to understand. There is an element of that, but there's something more as well. First, we see in verses 11 and 12 that the mystery of the kingdom is revealed to insiders, not to outsiders. Jesus distinguishes between those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. Um, And this word that's translated in the ESV, secret, can also be translated mystery. The Greek word is mysterion. And it doesn't really correspond with the English word mystery, though at least in the sense that we tend to think of it today. When we think of mysteries, we think of what? Sherlock Holmes... Agatha Christie, uh, maybe Scooby-Doo. And those mysteries require careful investigation, uncovering. That's not really the sense of the New Testament term mysterium. In this context, in another New Testament context, it doesn't refer to what is mysterious or unknown, but rather to God's revelation, to what would be unknown if God hadn't revealed it to us. The outsiders, though, they get parables. Why? Jesus quotes from Isaiah in verse 12, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. At face value, this seems to be saying that parables are designed to shut people out, that they prevent people from perceiving, understanding, and repenting. And as we said, didn't Jesus come to be the light of the world? Well, to understand this enigma here, it's helpful to look back at the passage that Jesus is quoting, Isaiah 6. So if you, want, if you can, turn back to Isaiah 6. And this passage comes uh, right after Isaiah witnesses God on the throne. And remember what God says, who will go out for us? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then we understand a bit more about Isaiah's mission. Keep on hearing. Oh, this is what God says. Go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is Isaiah's commissioning. God is sending him out as prophet, as his mouthpiece, And what does he tell him to do? Well, he tells him that many of the people, most of the people, will not respond. So the first thing we see in this passage in Isaiah that Jesus quotes in Mark 4 is the syndrome of hard-heartedness. These words about dull ears, heavy ears, and blind eyes presuppose the hardening of Israel. The same terminology is also used by Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah says, chapter 5, verse 21, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Ezekiel says, chapter 12, verse 2, You dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. So we see the hard-heartedness of the people being revealed here. And if we continue on in Isaiah 6, we also see that judgment is imminent. The promised land will be laid waste. The people will be sent into exile because of their failure to hear and obey God. But there is a promise of a remnant. And at the end of Isaiah 6, despite all of this, the message must be proclaimed because there will be a remnant of people who hear and obey the message. And notice how they're described in verse 13. They're described as holy seed. This isn't coincidental in light of the parables that we have in Mark 4, all of which deal with the planting of seed. So in light of Isaiah 6 and Jesus' quotation of it in Mark 4, parables can be seen as a prophetic instrument of warning presenting a challenge. And what is the challenge? The challenge is to hear, to listen, to heed God's message. In fact, in Mark 4, the words hear and listen appear about 13 times. With that kind of repetition, we know that it's important. So the parables really have a dual function. First, they illustrate the truth for those who have the ears to hear. It is striking later on in the chapter that it says that Jesus has to explain them to these people. They don't necessarily understand them on their own. As well, the symbolism of the parables hides the truth from anyone without the discipline and desire to seek out Christ's meaning. And this is a form of divine judgment. The parables enlighten and instruct, but often do so with a message that people do not want to hear. So there are three parables in our reading for this morning and I'd like to focus on the first one, the parable of the sower. This is the first narrative parable that appears in Mark, also in Matthew and Luke. And many see it as a kind of uh, key into understanding other parables. As well, Jesus also provides an interpretation of this parable and that's not typical with the narrative parables. So let's look at the parable of the sower. we see that the first two elements of this parable are the sower and the seed. In Jesus's interpretation of the parable, he simply says, the sower sows the word. Both of our Old Testament and New Testament readings for this morning describe this. Isaiah 55 describes God as the sower, that his word goes out and it doesn't return empty. It bears fruit. It accomplishes what God wants it to do. And then 1 Peter 1 speaks of the imperishable seed of God's word. So here in Mark 4, Jesus is really fulfilling messianic prophecy as the sower of God's word. We don't see too much explanation about the sower and the seed, do we? The reason is the focus is on the soils. Clearly, the soil is a picture of the human heart. It's deceitful and wicked, as Jeremiah says, but God sees it for what it is. And Jesus tells this parable because he wants people to give careful consideration to the nature of their own hearts. There are four types of hearts that Jesus describes. Let's examine them closely. The first is the roadside soil, the path. Um, In the first telling, verse 4, some seed fell on the path and the birds came and devoured it. This ground is hard from foot traffic, from people trampling on it. And because of its hardness, the seed never has a chance to take root and sprout. And as a result, the birds come and devour the seed. In the interpretation of this parable, verse 15, Jesus says the ones along the path, when they hear uh, the word, Satan immediately comes and takes it away, that which is sown in them. Satan uses many tools to snatch away the word. Deceit, confusion, human passion, pleasure. Uh, Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's zero receptivity with this particular soil. It's impenetrable. It's like concrete Cement or asphalt. Indifference and sensibility and a love for sin have made this particular kind of heart dense, dry, and unreceptive. The light of Christ comes, the seed of the word, but it's rejected. Remember what John says the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's the spiritual condition of the path, of the roadside soil. The second soil that Jesus describes here is the rocky ground. We get the description of this in the first telling, verses 5 and 6. Other seed fell on a rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Notice the statement in verse 5, it did not have much soil. So by rocky ground, Jesus isn't describing soil that has small stones in it, but rather shallow soil on top of solid rock. Uh, Because the plant is unable to reach the water to develop a root system, when the sun shines and it becomes hot, it scorches the plant. And you can see this in arid climates where during the rainy season, many plants come to life, but when it becomes dry, they turn brown because they have no root. They're not able to provide themselves with water. Jesus then tells us the spiritual condition of this particular kind of soil, the heart that it represents. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while When tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Notice the initial response. It's positive, right? This is better than the roadside soil. There's a positive response. But it seems to be a superficial response. Like the soil, it's superficial. So when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they fall away. Notice this phrase, on account of the word. It's not just any difficulties that come, but specifically difficulties that come from being associated with God on account of the word. Persecution. The third type of soil that Jesus tells us about, the third type of heart, is the weed or thorn-infested ground. In the first telling, other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Anyone who's done gardening in the state of Virginia understands the challenge that weeds present. Um, it, 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 it catches my attention every year how during this time of the year, everything is brown and barren. But sometime in mid to late May, this valley turns into a seasonal jungle and weeds take over everything. You have to constantly fight them back. Jesus talks about the spiritual condition of this kind of heart in his interpretation, verses 18 to 19, that the thorny soil represents those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, desire for other things, enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, that sounds like materialism. We know a lot about that in our culture. Material prosperity can give people a false sense of security, and well-being. And just a sort of a preview for what's coming later on in Mark, we see the story of the rich young ruler, right? Where Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But it's not just material possessions that can choke the word. Also, the cares of the world can do this. And these aren't necessarily bad. They're not inherently bad, the cares of the world, but they can't absorb all of one's time and energy. This is an occupation, but preoccupation with temporary things. These flood the heart and drown out God's word. Finally, we get to the good soil, the fruitful soil. Um, Its chief characteristic is pretty straightforward. It's fruitful. It bears fruit. It produces grain 30 times. 60 times, 100 times. When Jesus gives the explanation of the poem in verse 20, he says that these hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. The fact that we have different levels of fruitfulness, 30, 60, 100, suggests that maybe not all believers are equally fruitful. And yet, an abundance of fruit is expected of all believers. So let me finish by providing sort of four points of application that directly relate to each one of these types of soil. The first application, beware, oh beware of the danger of a hard heart. Keep in mind that hard-heartedness is not just about pagans who sin flagrantly without repentance. In Mark 3, Jesus grieves the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. These are the most seemingly the most religious people in Israel, and they are hard-hearted. Remember what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Fresh out of Egypt and in the desert, what do the children of Israel do? They go astray in their hearts, and as a result, the author of Hebrews tells us God does not allow them to enter his rest. They can't go to the promised land. Because of this, the author of Hebrews warns, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you away from the living God. This is a danger for believers as well, the problem of hard-heartedness. Remember the case of Pharaoh and his hard heart? In the early chapters of Exodus, it speaks of Pharaoh's heart being hardened 18 times, 18 times. And what's startling is that sometimes Pharaoh hardens his heart to the message of Moses, but other times God hardens it for him. This suggests that there's a sense in which God confirms people's self-chosen blindness. We see this in Romans 1 where God gives the ungodly over to evil, And because of the great danger of hard-heartedness, we must faithfully pray for spiritual sensitivity and perception. We must pray continually that God would open the eyes and ears of our hearts. A second point of application, beware of superficial faith. Testing and tribulation will come. But perhaps the reason that we see many superficial professions of faith in the West is because few... Have been required to put their lives on the line for their faith. In the former countries of the Soviet bloc, uh, there were no lukewarm believers in the communist regimes. There wasn't really a place for lukewarm believers. To borrow a metaphor from the next type of soil, persecution has a way of weeding out the uncommitted. Beware of superficial faith. Third, Beware of the chokehold Beware of the chokehold that material possessions and worldly cares can have. Beware of the chokehold that material possessions and worldly cares can have. Um, these choke the word, as we've seen. And this is a particular problem in our consumerist society, where shopping is a major leisure activity. People do it for fun, right? And it can be fun. It can be fun, but um, I don't recall ever seeing so many people out shopping as I did this last Christmas season, even with COVID or maybe because of COVID. Perhaps people were tired of the quarantine. They're tired of being cooped up. They just wanted to get out. But I also fear that people were going shopping to try to satisfy deep-seated unhappiness, and trying to find happiness in material possessions. It can work for a while. Hebrews speaks of the pleasures of sin, that for a season which Moses resisted, but ultimately it's vanity. And as we see clearly from this parable, the word of God cannot be satisfied with casual or temporary uh, attention. It's all-encompassing, and it will not share the stage with wealth and mundane cares about life. And one final point of application, remember that God demands fruitfulness. If we call ourselves Christians, we must be fruitful. The whole point of a sower sowing seed is to produce a crop, right? The whole point of being a Christian is to live a fruitful life. Um, To paraphrase James 2, faith without fruit is dead. Two of the three failed sowings have positive initial responses, but they don't last. They're superficial. And faith that is temporary and unproductive is not true faith. We see God's heart for fruitfulness from the very beginning. In Genesis 1, he tells all of creation to be fruitful and multiply. And in Matthew 28, we have sort of the New Testament equivalent in the Great Commission of this commission to be fruitful and multiply, to make Make disciples of the nations to be fruitful. We're called to bear fruit. Jesus tells us that it's an indicator of one's spiritual state. You will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus also says the kingdom will be taken away from those who do not produce fruit. The Apostle Paul is also very clear about the requirement for fruitfulness. Um, in Colossians 1.10, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit, and every good work. So in light of Jesus' prophetic word, his deeply insightful parables about the human condition, look carefully at your heart. Inspect the fruit of your life. And I'll close with one final challenge from our gospel reading. Pay attention to what you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Amen.